birth of Jack Ransom on Wednesday, April the 7th, weighing in at a whopping 9 pounds, 6 ounces, and you wondered why Jennifer was looking so large. Uh, to my knowledge, all parties involved are doing well. That puts me in the pulpit this morning. Uh, let me begin by saying that Pastor Jeremy will return next week and continue his study in Isaiah. So if you're a visitor with us this morning and you're not from out of town, I encourage you to come back uh, next week when Pastor Jeremy will return to the pulpit. This time, if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of Matthew chapter 28. That's on page 989 in the Pew Bibles. 989 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Children. Oh, and uh, while we're doing that, <laughs> we can uh, let the little kids out of here so, they, uh, so they're not subjected to the youth pastor's preaching. They'll get enough of Rich's preaching when they're a little bit older. They can run. No, do not run. Walk very quickly. I think that's most of them. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. In the next 30 minutes, I want to look at one... Mary and Mary as Resurrection Day prototypes for following the risen Christ. Two, I want to listen once again to the first recorded and powerful words of the resurrected Lord. And then three, I want to examine Mary and Mary's motivation and ask, do we need to resurrect our own Easter passion? But before we look into God's Word, let's pray. Father God, what a great privilege it is to come into your house and be with your people, to worship you with, with freedom this morning. I thank you for our praise team and the gifts you've given them, with the abilities that they have to lead us into your presence. I thank you that you're here this morning, that you're in the house. I thank you most of all, Lord, that I don't stand at this pulpit alone. Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word this morning. I, prepared, and I pray that you would uh, speak clearly and truthfully 
through my lips. We pray this in Jesus' name. The people of the Lord said, Amen. Amen. In your bulletin, you'll find sermon notes that look like this. It's got some fill-in-the-blanks, a little outline. If this helps you stay awake and alert, and uh, I encourage you to use that. If it's a distraction or it doesn't help, you just toss it aside. Uh, but it certainly helps me. A, Resurrection Day Prototype. The first post-resurrection encounter with Jesus. Mary and Mary as prototypes for the purpose-driven church and life. Rick Warren, the godly and gifted pastor of Saddleback Community Church out in California, has written a couple of best-selling books, The Purpose-Driven Church and, most recently, uh, The Purpose-Driven Life, which I understand was very high on the New York Times uh, bestseller list for nonfiction. Both are valuable books with some excellent ideas. In these notable books, Pastor Warren postulates that our churches should be about five specific purposes. Fellowship, ministry, worship, discipleship, and evangelism. This is a noteworthy recommendation, but not a new idea. I believe that these five purposes go all the way back to Mary and Mary at the very first Easter. Let's begin in verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Mary and Mary set out to find Jesus together. Number one, they set out to find Jesus together. Fellowship. Fellowship's a fancy word for hanging out with other believers. Spending time with other Christians, with other like-minded followers of Jesus Christ. Mary and Mary went together to the tomb. They were in fellowship, one with another, as they set out that morning. If you put your finger in Matthew 28 and flip ahead to the very end of Mark, on page 1010 in the Pew Bible, we're going to read just one verse from Mark 16. Mark 16, 1. It says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Mary and Mary went to serve Jesus. They went to serve Jesus. We call this ministry, serving Jesus or serving people in Jesus' name. Ministry. The morning when they set out that first Easter morning, they went to, uh, to properly prepare Jesus' body for his burial. So we have fellowship and ministry, two of the five so far. If we go back to Matthew 28 and jump down to verse 9. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Mary and Mary fell at Jesus' feet and worshipped. They worshipped Jesus. Worship. Worship is expressing our adoration, admiration, awe, love, and respect to and for God. Expressing our adoration, admiration, awe, love, and respect to and for God. Mary and Mary worshipped. So we have fellowship, ministry, and worship. Next verse, verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Four, Mary and Mary listened to and learned from Jesus. They listened to and learned from Jesus. We call this discipleship. Listening to the Lord, listening to God's Word, studying God's Word, learning about what God has told us and taught us. Discipleship. 
And then if you'll read just the first half of verse 11, while the, women were, while the women were on their way, Mary and Mary obeyed Jesus and they went and told others what Jesus had told them. They went and told others what Jesus had told them. We call this evangelism. Evangelism. It's a long word, but basically it means going and telling others what the Lord has told you. Going and sharing the good news of Jesus with those around us. So we have the, the five purposes of the purpose-driven church. Fellowship, ministry, worship, discipleship, and evangelism. Do you want to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? I say follow the early example of Mary and Mary, who set out together to find Jesus, went to serve Jesus, fell at Jesus' feet, and worshipped him, listened to and learned from Jesus, then went and told others what Jesus had told them. For Mary and Mary, it was all about Jesus Christ. Seeking Jesus, serving Jesus, worshiping Jesus, listening to Jesus, obeying Jesus, declaring Jesus. By all means, I encourage everyone to read Rick Warren's books. But let's give some credit to Mary and Mary, and let's follow their Resurrection Day example. All right, so we've ever so briefly looked at Mary and Mary as prototypes of purposeful Christ followers. Now let's turn our attention to the first recorded and very powerful words of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. B, resurrection power. In verse 9, Jesus speaks a greeting. The Greek word is charet. It's the same word Judas greeted Jesus with at his betrayal in Matthew 26:49. It's a standard familiar greeting. Basically, hello or what's up. After the greeting, we read in verse 10 that Jesus speaks some very powerful words. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. These are the same words that the angel at the tomb had just spoken only moments earlier in verse 5. And the same words that the heavenly host of angels spoke to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 before they announced Jesus' birth. This makes sense because most people don't regularly encounter angels or risen lords. It's logical that Jesus spoke these words to calm Mary and Mary settle down their initial shock and amazement at seeing him alive. But in light of the resurrection, I believe these four words that Jesus spoke take on additional significance and power for all believers for all eternity. Because Jesus Christ bodily rose from the grave, all who put their trust and their faith in Jesus need not be afraid. Because Jesus Christ is risen, we no longer need to fear, number one, death. Death. First Peter 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection. The Apostle John when he encountered the risen Lord in the first chapter of Revelation, verses 17 and 18, declared, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. The risen Christ is the key that locks the door to death and hell and opens the door to eternal life in heaven. 
The risen Christ is the key that locks the door to death and hell and opens the door to eternal life in heaven. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, says it this way, But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Because Jesus Christ is risen, all who have placed their faith in him share this wonderful Easter hope. The hope that we too, through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, shall be raised to eternal life with Christ. Because the tomb is empty, death is no longer final. All glory be to God. In Christ, when it comes to death, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of death. Do not be afraid of judgment. Do not be afraid of judgment. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28 Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of of many people. Because of the once and for all sacrificial death of our Lord Christ on that first Good Friday, we no longer need to fear God's wrath when we face our final judgment. Yes, one day we will all stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. But as Pastor Jeremy so eloquently preached last week, on that first Good Friday, God poured out His wrath the wrath that we deserve for our stubborn sin and rebellion. God's wrath has been poured onto Jesus Christ. Our sin debt is paid in full. Our due and just punishment has already been taken. When God looks on those who have received Christ as their Lord and Savior, God sees His Son, Jesus Christ. All glory be to God. In Christ, when it comes to judgment... Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of death. Do not be afraid of judgment. Thirdly, do not be afraid of Satan, the devil. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children had flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. On the cross and through the resurrection, the devil has been defeated once and for all. The war between God and Satan is over. Yes, the battles continue, but because of Jesus Christ's triumphal resurrection, Satan is now a defeated adversary. All glory be to God. In Christ, when it comes to our enemy Satan, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of death. Do not be afraid of judgment. Do not be afraid of Satan. And finally, do not be afraid of anything. Do not be afraid of anything. The psalmist in Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, boldly declares, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake. 
with their surging. Here's the most wonderful paradox. If one fears God, one need not fear anything else. If one fears God, one need not fear anything else. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to all who put their faith in the risen Lord. Now, right now, I'd like some uh, congregational participation and assistance. I can use your help. When I say, Jesus replies, will you respond good and loudly, do not be afraid? Let's practice. Jesus replies, do not be That's pretty good. When Pastor Jeremy says, you're preaching Easter Sunday, Jesus replies, when you desperately want a child, but you just had your third miscarriage, when it looks like you may lose your legal risk adoption, Jesus replies, Do not be afraid. When you used to love playing sports and running marathons and you need hip replacement surgery, when your elderly and ailing loved ones don't know Christ and face an eternity in hell, Jesus replies, Do not be afraid. When your child is kicked out of kindergarten and is diagnosed as having special needs, when you find yourself parenting your parents, when your family doesn't understand your faith, Jesus replies, when it's the first day at your dream job, when the Red Sox once again lose to the Yankees, when thousands are killed on 9-11, when the doctor says it's inoperable cancer, Jesus replies, when you've been looking for a job for two years, when your spouse says, I don't love you anymore, when your teenage daughter or teenage friend dies in a senseless car crash, Jesus replies, when you're taking the SAT or MCAS test, when you're thinking about sharing your faith with your neighbor, when your son calls you from the police station, when you're taking your driver's license road test, when your unwed daughter says, I'm pregnant, Jesus replies. When your loved one is stationed in Iraq, when you're praying about a possible future as a missionary, when the Board of Health refuses your building permit, when your ex won't let you visit your children, when the Massachusetts Supreme Court legalizes gay marriage, Jesus replies. When you first learn that you're going to be a parent, when you learn that your financial aid has not been renewed, when you see the degradation of morality in our culture, when Homeland Security Alert goes to orange, when it looks like the wrong politicians may be elected, when you're getting old, losing your hair, losing your memory, Jesus replies, Do not be What fears are weighing on you today? In light of the risen Lord, let us hang on to the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. All glory be to God. In Christ, when it comes to anything, do not be afraid. Well, we've looked at the resurrection prototype and the resurrection power. And I'd like to finish by looking at resurrecting passion. Love driving out fear brings us full circle back to Mary and Mary. I want to end today by looking at what was behind Mary and Mary's purposeful behavior. 
Resurrecting passion, motive, Mary and Mary's actions were one, planned, and two, prepared for. Planned and prepared for. In Mark 16:1, we saw that as the Sabbath ended, they went out and bought spices. They got up early the next day. They'd thought it through. They knew what they wanted to do, and together they had come up with an action plan. They had purchased what they needed. They set their alarm clocks or their alarm sundials. They got up early. They headed out. They knew where they were going and what they planned to do when they got there. This was not haphazard followership, merely allowing the Spirit to lead them wherever they might go. They had a plan and they were prepared. But I believe that behind their plan and their preparation was an immense, super-rational, passionate love for Jesus Christ. An immense, super-rational, passionate love for Jesus Christ. It was this love that overcame their fear. It's this passionate love that placed them at the cross. It's this passionate love that led them to the tomb while many of Jesus' followers were hiding out in an upper room behind a locked door. You can check that out in John 20, verse 19. It's this passionate personal love that I believe drove their purposeful behavior. Mary and Mary spent time with each other because they shared a passionate love for the same man, Jesus the Christ. Think about it. Could two women have had less in common? One was the virgin, who according to Luke 1.28 was highly favored, whom the Lord was with, chosen by God, and whose body had carried the very Son of God. The other was a woman who, early church tradition holds, made her living selling her body. This wasn't a small group based on natural affinity. This was fellowship grounded on a mutual passion for Jesus Christ. They went to the tomb together because they both passionately loved Jesus. They wanted to minister to properly prepare Jesus' body for burial because they passionately loved Jesus. Falling at Jesus' feet and worshiping him was a natural response for Mary and Mary who so passionately loved Jesus Christ. I believe listening and learning from Jesus was something that they deeply desired and looked forward to, not something they dutifully did once a week. And going and telling others was a natural outflow of their passion, not a painful obligation. Mary and Mary were passionate. They were passionate. Do you remember when you were passionately in love? Do you remember what it was like to do silly, irrational things for the one you were courting? Do you remember the feeling? Do you remember the euphoria? Remember writing poems and love songs? Love letters? Remember your intense longing to be with that special person? Remember counting the days, even the hours, until you'd be with them again? Remember the thrill it was just to hear their voice on the phone? Remember when you first fell in love with Jesus Christ? Remember when you couldn't put your Bible down? When you wanted to introduce all your friends to your new best friend? When you were so frustrated because your family and friends didn't share your passion for Jesus? How you couldn't understand how anyone could possibly not love Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've never fallen passionately in love with Jesus Christ, I pray that today may be the first day of your forever courtship. If you're here today and you fear death and judgment, we want you to leave unafraid. At the conclusion of the service, there will be some people joining me up front who would very much enjoy the opportunity to further introduce you to the risen Lord Jesus Christ 
to help you get started in a lifelong, passionate, personal relationship with Him. A loving relationship in which all you need to fear is God. If you're ready to place your faith in Jesus, or if you want to talk about it more and understand more what this involves, I invite you to come up at the end of the service. There's no better time than Easter Sunday to discover and experience God's immense and gracious love. And there's no better time to publicly declare and express your love for Jesus Christ. And now a word for those of us who have been on this Christ-following path for some time. More than anything else, God wants us to be passionately in love with His Son, Jesus Christ. To love Christ with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But someplace along the way, some of us who were once passionate in our expression of love for Jesus Christ seem to have lost that original passion. Following Christ has become a duty and an obligation. We still have a plan and we are very well prepared. But the passion is missing. We know our Bibles. We practice the five purposes. But we no longer do irrational, spontaneous acts of love for Christ. We set aside time in our palm pilots and our daytimers for fellowship, ministry, worship, discipleship, and maybe even evangelism. But we don't write love letters or poems to Jesus. We wear our Easter outfits. We generously give our tithes and our offerings. But we don't passionately fall at Jesus' feet. We politely sing our hymns and maybe even clap occasionally while we sing, especially at this service. But our corporate and our personal worship would never be interpreted by an outsider as passionate. Tears no longer flow down our cheeks when we think about the passion of the Christ. Oh yes, we express our gratitude and we are truly thankful. But spontaneous acts of worship and heartfelt expressions of our feelings simply aren't our style. We prefer to be purpose-driven. Give us lists of things we need to be about. Teach us the right behaviors and let us practice and perfect these actions. Elect us to committees or offices or pastoral staff positions where we can carry out the important functions of the church. Somewhere along the line, we mistakenly come to think that we can please Jesus Christ merely by the things we do. To us, the risen Lord says today, as he said to the church in Ephesus, as is recorded in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, you have forsaken your first love. Repent and do the things you did at first. Please take a look at the plan, preparation, and passion chart in the sermon notes. You see these little arrows here? This graph isn't God's word by any stretch of the imagination, but rather my theory. Here's my theory. When we're new in our faith, the left side of the chart, our passion is naturally high. We have an unbridled love for Jesus Christ. Uh, our passion is a natural response for what we've become aware that Jesus has done for us. Therefore, during this time, it's important that in the beginning of this new relationship, we focus mainly on planning and preparation. Passion is going to take care of itself. But as time goes on, we get better skilled at planning and preparing to follow Jesus. We study and learn our Bibles. We develop the daily quiet time habit. We learn and practice the five purposes, fellowship, ministry, worship, discipleship, and evangelism. We get involved in the life of a local church, and we have a solid plan for our followership. Now it's time for us to focus our attention on passion. 
The planning and the preparation that is much needed to follow the risen Lord now comes naturally to us. But keeping our passion alive for Jesus Christ takes intentional focus and effort. After we've been married to Jesus for some time, I believe the most important thing we can do is find creative and spontaneous ways to keep our personal passion for the risen Lord alive. To find creative and spontaneous ways to keep our personal passion for the risen Lord alive. How can we resurrect our initial passion for the risen Lord Jesus Christ? If the preacher gives us a prescription, it defeats the goal. The goal is our genuine, spontaneous expression of passion and love for Christ. Therefore, I will not give you a list of five things to do. Rather, I want to give us all a challenge of one thing to focus on. Focus on finding new ways to genuinely and passionately express your love for the risen Lord Jesus Christ. If you're at the gym and your bench press hits a plateau, you have to change your routine. You've got to add some new exercises, change the number of reps, the number of sets, give the baby a pacifier, (laughs) do something new and different. Has our passion for Christ hit a plateau? Think about it. And that passion scale, has it leveled off? Or are you still as passionate for Christ as you were that first day you came to meet Him? If you've hit a plateau, then maybe it's time to change up your routine and shift your purposeful focus onto a passionate love for Christ. I want Southshire Baptist to be a passion-driven church, driven first and foremost by the passion of the Christ. I pray that Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection will always be central to everything we do and teach here at Southshire Baptist Church. But I also want our church to be passion-driven in the sense that it is our passionate love for the risen Christ that motivates and drives our godly and Christ-centered pursuits. May we pursue fellowship, ministry, worship, discipleship, and evangelism because our hearts are on fire in passionate, super-rational love and devotion for the risen Lord Jesus Christ. May the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ fuel our passion for the risen Lord Jesus Christ. May our lives and our church not be driven by purpose, but rather may our purposeful lives and our purposeful church be driven by passion. Please stand, if you would, as the praise team comes uh, to lead us passionately in a final song of worship. thing about uh, about scripture is whether it's New Testament whether it's Old Testament it's all pointing to God's plan for salvation pointing to the coming Savior who's come among us crucified on the cross and risen from the dead triumphing over death so we want to lift up a last song of praise to him
It's a song with Old Testament imagery, but a great forward-looking view to uh, the coming Savior. So let's sing together the days of Elijah. put your faith in Jesus this morning, or if you want to talk more about that, please come forward at the conclusion of the service. Also, if you have some fears, you already have your faith in Jesus, but you have some fears, and you'd like to 
to receive some prayer. There's some folks up here who would also love to pray with you about whatever it is that's troubling you this morning. And now let's close with these words. Now may the grace of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. And the people of the Lord said, Amen. Amen. Thank you.